Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Holy cats, what a whirlwind we have been on so far within our journey. This roller coaster of an investigation now has 115 episodes, 50 more episodes if you count the not done yet's on Patreon. Our foundation is in place. The structure is built. It is high time to level up in our journey and circle back to our main character, Dominic Dunn. It is the idea of his third act, Dominic's resurrection from the abyss that we know him for. His time and fame as a writer, as a novelist, as an investigative journalist. Dominic breaks into his third act in the mid-1980s, but not without a glorious first-time Hollywood ride, a colossal downfall, and a super low rock bottom to get there. We have heard now how absolutely wrong Truman Capote's third act went. Dominic Dunn's goes a little differently. And this is in part, I think, thanks to Truman Capote. No doubt, Dominic in his rock-bottom years and quest in finding and maintaining sobriety did the hard work. But there is a Truman Capote influence on our man Nick in Dominic's lowest point that will become a beacon a signal, a touchstone for Dominic's third act. We really are right here at the connection point of bringing it all together. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to pull out this magical spyglass to give some thanks and love and praise to our most recent supporters at patreon.com slash done and done You magnificent souls, the lot of you. Thank you, thank you, Ironside, Megan B., Emily B., Leslie C., and Ray M. Thank you, thank you so, so much. Thanks to all of our patrons supporting our Done and Done investigation. I am so grateful for you all. And hey, one more name in the spyglass here with huge thanks. London Look 223 for the very awesome review you rock. Thank you all, this crew of Done and Done Detectives. I am thrilled that you are here joining us today as it is time to fly in this voyage of ours. This summer, we will explore the intersection of Dominic Dunn's first Hollywood rise all the way through his Hollywood downfall, leading ultimately to his later-in-life third act, with all the people and the places and the true crimes, mysteries and scandals included too. And it all begins with a letter. Let's investigate. It is Dominic Dunn coming into his third act at the age of 50 that intrigues me. 
I am utterly fascinated by the journey he takes and how it falls into this theme of reinvention and evolution, a thread of lost and found, so to speak. How to find that treasure inside of you that was buried there the whole time? The universe does give us all the clues if we're paying attention. Dominic Dunn was getting some fairly significant clues at this point in his life. Let us get in the journey to that Oregon cabin in 1978, where this letter from Truman Capote shows up on Dominic Dunn's doorstep and why it is so important. Let's set in place Dominic Dunn within this framework. Dominic, from the age of four, has wanted to be rich and famous. That was his dream. He wants to get to Hollywood, into the stars and the glamour. We know his thrill and delight from that very first visit our nine-year-old Nick makes to California to visit his Aunt Harriet, where Little kid is telling the tour bus drivers about what they're missing out on within their tour and, oh, the fabulousness of the Brown Derby as well. Dominic Dunn grows up a little, makes it through the war. He's always been a different kind of kid, regarded as kind of a sissy, most especially by his father, at least until Dominic's World War II Medal for Bravery comes around. Dominic's father dies shortly after his time in the war, and it is on to his life. Dominic hasn't forgotten that lifelong ambition to be rich and famous. There's a little time in college, a little rest and relaxation in Guatemala, too, with Andreas Davendorf, only to meet up with Gore Vidal and Anais Nin. Dominic Dunn is going to choose the theater, and that's going to lead him to the big city, New York City, to begin with. Here he will get a gig in television as the floor manager of the Howdy Doody show, and then on to stage manager of Robert Montgomery Presents. Dominic is meeting through work and play, soon to be very famous people, and also along the way, finds love, and gets married. Dominic meets the incredible Ellen in 1953. Nick's mother, Dorothy, is the one who says to Dominic the day that he meets Ellen, that is the girl you are going to marry. And sure enough, six months later, it is marriage for Nick and Ellen Lenny in April of 1954. And then two young sons, follow while the couple is still living in the city, the oldest of those sons, actor, producer, and director Griffin Dunn. Through his time working in New York City, we know Dominic's life has changed when he does get out to Hollywood again, this time by the invitation and recommendation of Humphrey Bogart and Frank Sinatra. Dominic attends a little Friday night party of a lifetime during his weeks in Hollywood, where Dominic rushes back to his phone at the Beverly Hills Hotel, calls his wife Lenny, as she is affectionately known, and Dominic Dunn is like, Honey, this place is incredible. 
It was the best party ever. We have to move to California. Dominic is getting one step closer to his lifelong dream as Lenny and the kids will pack it on up and move from New York City to sunny Hollywood. Their neighbors here are Patricia Kennedy and Pat Lawford, renting Harold Lloyd's beach home in Malibu. The Dunns will move in to a lovely home on Walden Drive. A daughter, Dominique, will follow. So here we have Nick and Lenny, three kids, and Dominic Dunn is doing the thing. Socially, for certain. Dominic is at a party every night for near on two decades. That is, unless he's hosting his own. And it's not just Dominic Dunn rising within the Hollywood social circles. He's doing great within his career, too. In the beginning, we know about Adventures in Paradise with Gardner McKay. Through the 1960s and early 1970s, Dunn is producing television and movies, including Mark Crowley's The Boys in the Band and The Panic in Needle Park as well, alongside his brother and sister-in-law, John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion. The Panic in Needle Park will also launch Al Pacino in his acting career. These successes are followed by the ill-fated Ash Wednesday with Elizabeth Taylor, which could have been great, but was a flop. The very inappropriately timed and bad joke Dominic Dunn makes during the filming of Ash Wednesday, while intoxicated, is what really sinks him in 1973. Sue one of the most popular producers and movers and shakers in Hollywood at the time, did not take kindly to Dominic's joke made in very poor taste about her weight and her boyfriend. Elizabeth Taylor tells Dominic on the set of Ash Wednesday, this is the last movie you will ever make. Even Robert Evans, legendary Hollywood producer, tells Dominic done after this, you will never work in this town again. Dominic knows, because he's seen it, Hollywood will forgive you anything but failure. And friends, Nick really will colossally fail. By this time, 1973, 1974, all the way to 1978, things get worse and worse for our man Nick. He's either on unemployment assistance or taking the work he can get. The marriage with Lenny is over. Dunn's drug and alcohol misuse is already fairly intense. It will continue to escalate rapidly. And honestly, all of these years, Dominic is losing everything he thought he ever wanted. So Dominic Dunn will hit rock bottom, and in 1978, head out of Los Angeles. He will end up in a one-room cabin in Oregon for about six months. No telephone, no television, no booze, no cocaine. It is Dominic Dunn and silence. He's sitting with his own soul, so much quietness, reckoning out at the age of 50, 
with a life that he views has gone bust, and then perhaps seeking and searching for that buried treasure within him. There is a lovely introduction Dominic Dunn writes for his Fatal Charms and Other Tales of Today. This is a 1987 collection of stories printed from Dominic's work at Vanity Fair, with only two other credits on that also by the author page. Those two credits, The Winners and The Two Mrs. Grenvilles. Again, in 1987, Dominic Dunn is solidly into his third act, and it's only just the beginning of it. I want you to hear this next bit from Dominic himself about his late start in life, him changing everything, that letter from Truman, and finding that buried treasure. Again, from Fatal Charms, this is a word on a late start. Several years ago, when breaking up a house I had lived in for years in California, I came across a long-forgotten box of letters from World War II, which I, as a young soldier of 18 and 19, wrote to my mother, father, and sisters from several combat zones in the European theater of operations. In the same box were letters that my family had written to me in return that I must have carried around in my pack and saved. Reading what I had wrote to my family and what my family wrote back to me after 35 years was an eerie experience, an almost day-by-day account of their life in Hartford, Connecticut during wartime concurrent with mine as a teenage private in France, Belgium, and Germany in 1944 and 1945. More startling than our separate histories, however, was the revision of a resentment I had long nurtured about my late father. For years, I believed he had considered me to be a disappointment as a son because my interests were always more artistic than athletic. To my astonishment, his letters were filled not with the stern admonishments which were my memory of him, but with pride that I was fighting for my country, admiration for my descriptions of the events of war, and some long-term advice that I should give some thought after completing college to a career in writing. I didn't take his advice. My father died before I finished Williams College, and my life's choices were my own to make. I had been bitten by the theater bug at Williams and decided on a career in television in New York during that early period of live drama that has subsequently become known as the Golden Age. Then came Hollywood, where I spent 24 years in television and movies, both as a producer and studio executive, and began a long fascination, not only with the film industry, but also with the social life of the industry, where so many of the business decisions 
had their genesis. Within me lurked some sort of documentarian's need to record the extraordinary insider's life that became available to me. For nearly a decade, I kept copious scrapbooks and photograph albums with the intensity of someone who knew that none of it was going to last, at least for the recorder of the events. In these books are pictures of my serene and beautiful wife and our children staring out from a variety of exotic settings and invitations to and photographs of party after party after party. There is a photograph of Natalie Wood applying lipstick using the blade of a dinner party knife as a mirror. There is Cecil Beaton using a spoon to eat the ice cream from an ice cream cone. There is Warren Beatty playing the piano in black tie at a Vincent Minnelli party. There is Truman Capote in a deep dancing dip with Tuesday Weld. There is a married acting couple called Nancy Davis and Ronald Reagan who, even then before politics, were gazing fondly at each other. In 1978, I repaired to a small cabin in the Cascade Mountains of Oregon to lick the wounds of defeat in Hollywood. My once glamorous life in that community had gone awry, and the pain of a failed marriage that I was not able to let go of and a failed career that had let go of me had led me to self-destructive excesses. It was there in the cabin on the Metolius River near a community called Camp Sherman that I finally took up my father's wartime advice and began writing a novel. The process of writing was not unknown to me. In my previous career, I had always worked closely with writers and, long before I began to write, I often read the in-progress work of my writer friends and felt creative stirrings. An inner contentment that had long eluded me began to come back in Oregon, and I gave serious thought to remaining permanently in that sylvan glade. Then two things happened. I received a surprising letter from Truman Capote, another dabbler in self-destructive excesses. A long-time acquaintance, although never a friend, he had several times been a guest at our house in Beverly Hills during the days of my marriage. His was a letter of encouragement and admiration that I had dropped out of my life in order to try to pull it together again. Perhaps he knew it was what he should have done himself. But remember this, he wrote, that is not where you belong. And when you get out of it what you went there to get, you have to come back to your own life. Shortly thereafter, one of my brothers committed suicide and I flew east from Oregon to attend his funeral. It was then that I realized it was time for me 
to begin another chapter. I returned to Beverly Hills just long enough to sell every possession I once thought I could never live without. Pictures, furniture, even all of my books. And with two suitcases and a typewriter, moved to a little apartment in Greenwich Village to start a new life and a new career. I finished the book I began in Oregon, and it was published with not only no stir, but also with a lousy review in the New York Times. However, I was thrilled that at past 50, I was published at all, and even reviewed in the Times no matter how badly, and undeterred, I set about writing a new novel that eventually became the two Mrs. Grenvilles. That's where I'm going to stop that particular piece from now. That's Dominic Dunn in about 1981-1982, beginning work on the two Mrs. Grenvilles. I do have one other excerpt from our man Nick, this one from George Plimpton's Truman Capote, in a little bit further of an explanation about that letter. Dunn says, I went through a terrible period in my life. I'd become a drunk and I went broke and lost my family and all of these awful things happened. I went off to Oregon and lived in a little one-room cabin in the Cascade Mountains. I lived there for six months. I just dropped out of my life and actually thought of staying there forever. The only people who knew how to get a hold of me were my kids. There was a way to phone me through the person from whom I had rented the cabin, and that is when, by the way, I started to write. I was 50 years old. I had never written before. I had been a movie and television producer. Anyway, one day, out of the blue, I got a letter from Truman Capote. I couldn't get over it. I couldn't figure out how he knew where I was or why he would write. Although we had always liked each other, we were not letter-writing friends. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate my friendship with him. So, it was quite a unique experience that he wrote. It was a letter of admiration and encouragement for what I had done. It was one of the kindest letters possible, and he ended it by saying this, But remember this, that is not where you belong, and when you get out of it what you went there to get, you have to come back to your own life. Eventually, I left Oregon, closed up my Hollywood life totally, and moved to New York. I kept thinking of that letter. So what I had done is obviously what he knew he should have done. I quit drinking during that period up there. I kept thinking to myself, he would be alive if he did what I did. I had to weep at the memorial service. After he died, you know, it got very fashionable to kick him, not me. I've never forgotten the letter he wrote me. I never will. And investigators, I don't think that Dominic Dunn ever did forget that letter. 
and remember these two men, Truman Capote and Dominic Dunn, with such very different third acts, are born one year apart. They're contemporaries. There is history between them and through them by each of their connections. It is in Dominic Dunn's darkest time that Truman Capote and that letter really become a touchstone for Dominic Dunn, an inspiration. I think in an odd way, much like Truman Capote's paperweight gift from Colette in 1948. Dominic, in his rock bottom, is gifted something really special by Truman Capote, that letter of encouragement and motivation at a most unexpected time. Dominic Dunn does turn his whole life around and into something truly spectacular, but not without more tragedy to come with the murder of his beloved daughter Dominique in 1982. We have a whole journey before us in the coming episodes, investigators, of Dominic having it all the first time and losing it all and then finding the treasure within himself too. We will be weaving Dominic's story into the tapestry of the times, the people, the places, the stories, and the scandals that connect it all in this investigation. I do hope you join me next Monday for the beginning of that journey. And if you need more Dominic done in the meantime, patreon.com slash done and done will get you every episode early and ad-free for $2 a month. And for a little bit more, there's an extra bonus episode each week too. Those not done yet bonuses are a real journey. Thank you everybody for joining me today and for all your support, for listening, for telling your friends about Done and Done. Y'all are simply the best. I am wishing you the very best week. And until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.